Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know, my name is Andrew Conrad, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, we've started the series on being overwhelmed, but overcoming. And um, today, I want us to think about that in light of one of the overwhelming things in our culture, which is that we live in a culture of outrage and gaslighting. We live in a culture of anger. On a societal level, you see it in organized protests. Um, Polls have shown that anger is on the rise in the country, and one newspaper declared, quote, we live in an anger incubator, end quote. The Black Lives Movement uh, set parts of the city on fire. State police and Virginia Guard were called in to protect the Capitol. They were angry about racial violence by police around the country. January 6th, U.S. Capitol invasion caused damage and harm. They were angry over election fraud. I give you these examples not to speak to the merits of either of them, but to show you that we live in an outrage culture where people get angry and turn to violence very quickly. Social media uses algorithms, which you probably know, You may not know that those algorithms are weighted so that you will see things more when people click angry emojis or heart emojis, but the more the anger emoji gets clicked, the more people respond to it. Companies know this. Um, They know that internet clicks uh, are, are more drawn towards things that will, that spark anger or draw anger which means companies are building their marketing strategies and business plans around your ability to be angry because they will draw clicks. It doesn't just happen on a societal level either, right? It happens on an individual level. Think of my life. Anger is one of the sins that I've really had to wrestle with over the years, and I think I've gotten a little bit better with. Anger is, is powerful. It's hard, right? I mean, you probably had road rage this week. Anybody want to admit to that? I did. What about the referee that blows the call and your team loses the game? And you're like, come on, ref! Didn't you see that? Are you blind? And your four-year-old's running around on the field, right? Because it mattered that much in that game. Or, there's not even anybody else around. You're just in front of your TV yelling at the TV because you're so mad at the ref. What about a video game? I may have seen kids do this. Sins of the father getting passed on. When you can't beat the machine and you get so mad, you throw the controller across the room and it hits the wall and breaks. Or, what about when your spouse triggers you again? Right? Anger. It arises within us very quickly. And, and being overwhelmed with anger leads to all kinds of things. It leads to words that you wish you could take back. A fight that breaks out. Substance abuse. Hurt people. Restraining orders jail time, even death in the worst case scenarios. 
and it harms you spiritually. Anger can be a big, big problem that overwhelms us. Today we're going to look at several different passages in the Bible in this, and we're going to start in the book of James, chapter 1. So let's put those words on the screen, James chapter 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you will bless us this morning as we consider what your word has to say about anger in our lives. And help us not to be angry in a way that does not produce the righteousness you desire. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me be... Try to, I try to be clear. There's so many things I want to say, so I hope this is clear today. But um, trying to be clear, let me say this. Experiencing anger is natural, okay? Being overwhelmed with anger is sinful. That's, that's kind of the premise I want you to understand. Anger in itself is not bad. There's good anger and there's bad anger. But being overwhelmed by it is what leads to, the, to bad anger. And so how do we distinguish between good anger and bad anger? And then how do we overcome it? So let's think about how we distinguish between them. What is good anger or righteous anger? I did an English word search um, um, in the Bible for the word anger, and there's over 265 hits. The vast majority of them are about God's anger. I mean the vast, vast majority of them are about God's anger against evil and wickedness, mostly in the Old Testament. People repeatedly ask me, oh yeah, that God in the Old Testament, he, he's angry with this incredulous look on their face. I, don't, I want the God of love, not the one of the Old Testament. Let me just remind you that, um, that Jesus is God too and he got angry too. And I'll show you that in a second. But before I do, I want you to understand this. Your thought, which you may or may not have, but, but some do, I don't want the, the angry God. I think it's is flawed, and not only flawed, I think it's wrong, and I think actually it, you want the exact opposite. You want a God who's angry. Well, what? What are you saying? Let me explain. You want a God who will punish evil and injustice. You want a God who will kick the proverbial bully off of the playground because that bully makes you irate. You're angered by it, and you want justice. You do not want a God who is not angry, a God who, who you cannot imagine to be upset with anything, either means there's nothing wrong or evil going on in the world, or that you don't think God cares about it, or that you don't think he's powerful enough to do anything about it, or worse, you think he's evil himself. And what I'm saying to you is there really is bad things that go on. And you really do want a God who will set all things right. And say, yes, justice needs to be settled. Evil needs to be gone. Peace needs to come. Good needs to reign. It's the storyline of so many themes and movies in our culture, right? Good over evil. You don't get that unless you can be angry at evil. You want a God who's angry, just not angry with you. 
Amen. I don't want that either. But Jesus, who is God, gets angry too. Put up the verses, if you would, from Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. This is Jesus. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he's coming into the temple here. And it says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing here as he comes in is it's Passover, and the tables for the money changers are set there because as people come from out of town to Jerusalem, they, one of the big things they need to do is come to the temple to worship. And part of that is coming and bringing an offering, bringing a sacrifice. And that sacrifice has to be acceptable to the priests. One of the ways they get that is to come and change their money to temple money to give, and then to buy an offering, a dove, or something like that that they can take to the priest for sacrifice. And what's happening is, people have figured out that, oh, all these people are traveling a long way to do this. I bet they're willing to pay a nice price for this. And they're extorting the people in order to get into the temple so they can worship. And Jesus is saying, you're prohibiting people from coming to God because you're trying to make a buck off of this, and that should not be. And he gets angry and flips over the tables and drives them away. Right? Because they're preventing people from coming to worship God. To find mercy. To know they need sacrifice. And that makes Jesus angry. So what does good and righteous anger look like? Well, good and righteous anger is directed toward sin, directed toward evil, directed toward injustice. Right? Things that are wrong in the world. It is not a personal retribution um, we have to, Scripture tells us in Romans 12 that God will bring vengeance, that we should leave that to the Lord, that it's not ours to repay. Anger is, right, over injustice. I mean, we can think of historic examples of that even in our own country, right, of slavery, which is an injustice. To be angry over that and to work to change it is a good and right and just thing that was done. Women's right to vote, systemic cycles of poverty that are that are wrong and oppressive, those are good things to work against, right? So we can be angry at the wrongness that's there and try to work to correct it in right ways. And so we can look at all that anger out there, or all those uh, problems out there, and have an anger in the sense of it's unjust and we need to address it. Most of us probably need to be angrier about our own sinfulness. We just think, ah, it's okay, it's just a little thing but we should understand that it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing that causes many problems in the world. It's a serious thing that God has to deal with. Like I said last week, and Kaz mentioned, right? If we're, if we're not viewing ourselves, knowing the reality of our sin and the wretchedness that that is, then how amazing is grace? If sin's small, then Jesus doesn't have to be very big. But when your sin is known to be sour then grace is that much sweeter. We should probably be angry at our own sin. Here's some questions. We can put this slide with questions up here to consider to search your heart if your anger is righteous. Here's some questions maybe that help you with this. Do I entrust wrath to God or do I prefer my own version of vigilante justice? Do I come to Jesus before I go to war with somebody? Do I cry out to him for help when I'm agitated? Am I concerned with the things God is concerned about? Have I confessed my own sin today? 
Have I prayed about this? Right? Godly anger is slow to gather momentum because first thing it does is listens to God. Have you taken it to God? One of the difficulties in talking about righteous anger is that people like me hear that and I get angry and I think I'm right. Who doesn't? When you get angry, you always think you're right, right? That's why you're angry, because you think something wrong has occurred. And so it's easy to go, well, if I'm angry, I must be right. But that's not always true, and we know that. And so we need to talk about unrighteous anger, too. In uh, one of the Star Wars movies, one of the, the prequel one, one of the first three, I don't remember which one it is, Yoda's talking to young Anakin Skywalker, And he says, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Right? And he's trying to warn Anakin of the dark side in this way. It is important that we see what anger produces and to see the unrighteous parts of that. I'll give you a couple of examples from the Bible. Proverbs 29, 22, which predates Yoda by a long time. Um... Proverbs 20, can we put that on the screen? There it is. An angry person stirs up conflict. And a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Or Proverbs 30, 33, you can put that one up as well. For as churning cream produces butter, and as a twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring anger produces strife. Okay, time out, side note. Parents, this is why you just need to read the Bible with your kids. Like, that is great teaching right there. Kids, you know how you make butter? Yeah, you got to twist it and churn it and mess it. You know how you bust a nose and make it bleed? Yeah. yeah. The same thing happens with anger. If you do that, it's going to mess things up. So, anyways, um, bad anger produces things like strife, suffering. But it's also the root. It's root. The root of bad anger is failed idolatry. It's important we understand what anger does. Proverbs just showed us some of those things, right? It can produce strife and conflict and all kinds of things we'll talk a little bit more about. But we also need to understand the root of it. And at the root, anger is about where we think is wrong and where we think expectations should be. And when we're talking about sinful anger, unrighteous anger, what's happening is our idols are being revealed and they're failing us. It's failed idolatry. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. If your idol is that of pleasure the pleasure idol. And you're like, oh, yes. I finally get to go out um, with my spouse. We're going out for the weekend away or going out for a night. And, um, and the kids are, you know, finally we just can go. And that day comes and the kids are sick. And you're like, frustrated, right? Because you don't get to do a good thing to go out with your spouse But then you, because of that expectation that you want that's not met, you take and turn your anger at your kids. It's an unrighteous anger to be turned at your kids. What did they do? They got sick. They couldn't help that, right? Don't take your anger out on your kids. Or you're going on a trip with your spouse that you just have this dreamy expectation for. It's going to be glorious and all these things and it doesn't turn out quite so Disney-like. It causes fights and different things happen, right? I mean, 
our expectations are built up, but maybe your expectation of this superhuman level experience needs to be adjusted. Maybe you don't need to blow up then at your spouse when it doesn't turn out Disney-like. Or a sex idol. Husband's addicted to sexual lust that lashes out at his wife because she can't compete with his dream world. Or a wife that's addicted to romance novel, movie, things on Netflix that she lashes out against her husband because he can't live up to her ideals of romance. Can lead to anger, right? Those unmet expectations can lead to anger that can turn to an unrighteous kind of anger in that way. Or a victim idol. The person whose problems or sickness or health disorders, whatever, always become excuses. Now, I'm, health disorders and mental health disorders are very serious. I'm not trying to demean that in any way. But it's easy today, even aside from that, for everybody to be like, oh, well, poor me, this, you know, and play a victim card and like have everybody look at me so it's not really something I have to take responsibility for. And that's not true in mental health disorders. There's lots of ways that there are things you need to deal with there. But what can happen when you do adopt a victim mentality is you are saying in one sense that, look, I, I just want I don't want to be responsible for any of this and I just want people to love me. And everybody wants to be loved. And that's not a wrong thing to want to be loved. But when it doesn't happen, what do you do with the the unmet expectation? If it rises to anger, what does it look like? And oftentimes what happens when people play a victim kind of Um, status or put that victim status on themselves, that anger doesn't manifest in rage, but manifests in self-hatred, turning to depression or self-harm, because you can't deal with that, and you want love, which is a good thing. Lots of hard things that are interwoven together, which is why talking to people, to counselors, to therapists, to pastors is important to do. Or a power idol, Maybe much simpler here is just, I want to be in control and have power over others. And if they threaten me, guess what? I don't get mad. I get even. Right? That's a power idol. Like, I'm just going to, this is what I got to have. This is what I want. Those are ways in which anger, because of those idols, can come out and come out in unrighteous ways. Come out in bad and harmful ways. Going back to the Star Wars uh, analogy here, story, at the end of the Return of the Jedi movie, Uh, The evil emperor is threatening Luke as Luke is about to have a lightsaber duel with his father, Darth Vader, who is Anakin. And he threatens Luke by baiting him into fighting because he knows about Leia and he's going to go after Leia, Luke's sister. And so Luke fights Vader reluctantly, but to defend himself, he defeats Vader and cuts off his hand, which you may remember. And the emperor says in that moment, Your hate has made you powerful. Now fulfill your destiny and take your father's place on the dark side. And Luke tosses his lightsaber aside because he would rather die 
than go to the dark side and become evil. He is refusing the thing which would corrupt his soul and into hatred and wickedness. You see, so one way that we need to think about unrighteous anger is all the, what it produces, the roots of it, and what it produces and the harm it can cause. Right? To see the dark side of anger. That's true. And we need to be aware of that. But there's another thing that I want you to see today when we're talking about overcoming anger that I think is important. And it's the other side of seeing the deterrent of the dark side. It is seeing the light, so to speak. Overcoming your anger by seeing the power of God. In Psalm 4, 4 and and in Ephesians 4, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Right? And so that we know that we could be angry but not sin. And in this way, Yoda's words ring kind of true, right? That unchecked anger does turn into hatred and suffering. It can do that. But just as the Proverbs came before Yoda, so did Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What is Jesus saying about anger here? He is saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of law and those who are surrounded on the mount with him as, he's, as he is talking to them, that if you harbor anger in such a way that you have this settled indignation in your heart that turns toward bitterness and rage and, and anger toward others in that way, you are liable to the judgment of hell. Why? Why would he say that? Jesus would say that because what it means is you have failed to understand something critical about the character of God. That he is merciful. That he's merciful. Put up Micah 7, 18 for me if you would here in the Prophets. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Remember, it's not that God is not angry. He is angry and righteous in his character. But he delights to show mercy. And Jesus is saying, when you harbor that hatred, you're not like God, you're not delighting to show mercy. And if you don't understand mercy, then you are in the danger of suffering in the fires of hell. See, the biblical approach, what I'm trying to get at today with you, the biblical approach to overcoming anger is to let it be tempered and controlled by mercy. Let me give you another example from the prophets. Joel chapter 2, verse 13. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. God relents from sending calamity. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Does that sound familiar? It should. Joel is a prophet warning of what has come because a locust plague has come and wiped out the land and they have no produce and everything is shut down and um, they get no good stuff. And he's saying in the middle of that, don't just rend your garments. 
get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is to turn back to God, return to God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And that should sound familiar to you because if you read your Bible, you'll know that like in the Psalms, which are the worship book for the people of God, repeatedly again and again and again, it talks about God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But it's not just in Psalms because it goes back beyond that into other places. In fact, the first place that we see it occur in the scriptures in Exodus when the people are coming out of Egypt, they've come into the Sinai Peninsula and they're at Mount Sinai and there God gives them the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you are my people, I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. Come to the mountain, meet me at the mountain here. And there they take this covenant ceremony like a marriage in which they say, okay, we are now united together. Moses goes on up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. While he's up there and he's gone, the people are like, it's been a long time. I don't think he's coming back. What do we do? Let's build a golden calf. Good idea. All right. And that's what they do. And it was a terrible idea. Because they're not supposed to make any other idols or have any other gods or worship any other gods. And God's anger is stirred toward them. The bride that he's just taken has already turned and revolted and rebelled. Like they're not even off to the honeymoon yet. And she's running the other way. What does God do with his people then? What does the God who is angry at the sin do? Exodus 34, 6 is where we first see this language. Where God passes in front of Moses, proclaiming to Moses his name, his character, who he is. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord. I am, I am, Yahweh meaning I am. This is who I am, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's who he is. And so he takes his people back because his mercy is what tempers his anger. Judgment day will come. God's anger will be satisfied. It will not be tempered by mercy on that day for those who do not know God, those who do not follow him. If you don't know him, I beg with you, I plead with you as an ambassador of Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn to him. He is the one who is merciful. Follow Jesus. And what does that look like in terms of anger? Like, what does this understanding, this mercy look like into some practical terms? Let's talk about that for a few minutes here. I'm going to give you two, two phrases that I want you to key in on. Here they are. Ready? Settle up. Don't bottle up. Okay, that's one. Settle up. Don't bottle up. And the second one is simmer down. Don't blow up. Okay? These are both from Ephesians. Ephesians 4.26. You can put this uh, slide up there. In your anger, do not sin. Quoting Psalm 4.4. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Right? In other words, settle up before the sun goes down. The point here is that Paul is saying to the Ephesian people, is saying, when you hold on to anger and you keep it inside of you for days on end, it begins to consume you. It'll turn to to bitterness. It'll turn to to malice. 
It'll turn to rage. It'll become that settled indignation. You will begin to lack respect because the bitterness takes over and you have no respect for the other person. And it becomes poisonous to the relationship. That passive approach of, of, that, can, that can seem like bottling it up is a, is a good thing and I'll just be the, the, the bigger one about this and I won't say anything. Sometimes it's, the Bible says it's to one's credit to overlook a minor offense, yes. But when it's a thing that's ongoing and you know it's ongoing and it's bothering you and you're just playing the passive approach, well, I'll just be the bigger one and not say anything about it. You're actually avoiding confrontation and you're not doing what is loving and compassionate. You're doing what is self-serving because you don't want to get into an argument in the moment. But what you're going to do is bottle it up instead of settle up. Right? And the goal isn't just to not argue. The goal is to show mercy and to have peace and reconcile relationships. And that's not easy. I get it. It's very difficult. Communication is very important. Again, why counselors and pastors are trying to help with that. And even in your community groups talking about that. How do we communicate well with one another? So important. Right? But if you don't do that, if you bottle it up, that bitterness will grow. It'll take root and it'll begin to sprout. And then gossip will come about from the person. You'll start throwing verbal darts their way here and there because you've bottled it all up. But it has to come out somewhere. You can't keep it forever. And so it leaks out like poison or it comes out like darts. It leads to a blow up, right? And that's, that's the next thing. Simmer down, don't blow up. Um, the Ephesians didn't say go resolve the problem instantly, though you could. But sometimes when we do that instantly, we're in a fit of anger. And it's good to take a quick time out and get under control. But settle it sooner rather than later. Why, which is why it says before the sun goes down. So cooling off and gilding, getting yourself under control is good. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Let's put that slide on the screen if you would. We need to control our anger. This is what it says. Get rid of all bitterness. Remember we just talked about how like if you don't talk about it, it creates bitterness. Rage. We know what rage is. Anger, brawling, and slander with every form of malice. All of that is anchored around anger, Right? We're supposed to get rid of that and be self-controlled. And we do that by being then kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave us because his mercy tempers and goes against that anger. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, as followers of Jesus, be so affected by his mercy that we become merciful and forgiving too. But when you... When you blow up, you think, I just got to get it off. I just got to get it off my chest. I just got to say this. And blowing up and venting, venting's a cool thing to do. It's been cool for a long time since talk radio and now with social media. It's like everybody gets to vent like all day long. Thus, we live in an anger incubator. It's not a good thing. Christians, we should not be ones that are stoking anger through social media, group texts, chats. That's not what we should do. I mean, there's a, right, we talked about righteous anger. There's a place to stand up against what is wrong. But stoking it because we got to vent and put it out there and incite people to some reaction that we want is probably not the best way 
to do that. It reminds me of Cobra Kai. Strike first, no mercy. That's your motto if you're a blow-up person. This is what I do. It's not a healthy thing. Not a healthy thing. Right? Because the big failure in this is that you don't forgive. There's no mercy shown. There's no reconciliation. It's not the way of Jesus. Instead, what we're instructed to do is to respond with kindness like Jesus. With anger that's tempered, that's put down, that's controlled. Because Christ forgives us. Because he's merciful to us. How do you do that? You need to soak yourself in scripture. This is why Pastor Fletcher's always talking to you about, are you reading your Bible? Are you reading your Bible? You know, usually it's been said, I I don't know which pastor said it, but somebody has said it, that um, a sign of of a healthy Christian who's not falling apart is usually their Bible is falling apart because they've been flipping through it, reading it, soaking in it. Soak yourself in Scripture. And there may be times when you're like, I don't know, I just don't have any desire to read it or I can't read it. And I get that. Sometimes that happens too. One of the things that I find useful is listening to it when I'm tired of reading it. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? I read it. I don't want you to think that I read it all the time. That's not all I do. But but I do preach, you know, like every week. So I'm, I'm reading it a lot. I'm reading lots of parts of it and reading lots of commentaries on it. But it's different when you're listening to it. Just get a Bible app and play it. You can do that when you're on a walk or exercising when you're in your car and listening to it and hearing it like it's coming to you instead of you're trying to get it is a different way of perceiving and understanding it sometimes. And it may help you in that way. Remember that anger may make you proficient with weapons of this world. Like your tongue might get very sharp. Your fists may be very strong. But it's not the weapons of God, right? Anger is not what helps you wield the spiritual weapon, the sword of the spirit. Remember in Ephesians 6, which we don't have time to go look at right now, Paul talks about the armor of God and says, what you need is the spirit of God and his armor. The battle is against principalities and powers. Rather than anger and hate, we are called to love our neighbor and pray for our enemies, recognizing the spiritual forces that are at work. Soak yourself in scripture, know it. Get counsel of wise friends who have demonstrated they can temper anger with mercy. And be careful who you run with. Right? Your crowd influences you. Your tribe shapes you. It might end up killing you. At least killing your soul. I want to give you this quote, and it's on the screen, so you can read it there too. It's from Frederick Buchner, and it says this. Of the seven deadly sins... Anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to that last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are woofing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger that overwhelms you is very self-destructive to you and to your relationships. And what I want you to see is the way to overcome that 
is at the cross, where the righteous anger of God and the mercy of God meet, where justice is satisfied, and those who are covered by Christ will know only the mercy of God. They don't have to face judgment. So as followers of Jesus, temper your life with the mercy of God. Let it govern your relationships, your social media, your chat groups. Right? You want to overcome anger? Don't focus on the anger. Don't focus on the sin. Focus on Jesus who delights to be merciful. And then mercy will begin to shape you. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who are of the book, the Bible, that we know it, that we see your story through it, of how, yes, you can be angry, but how you delight to show mercy. And will you help us in our moments when, when expectations are there, when real wrongs are done, and when we are hurt, when anger is there to be directed in good ways, that we will work to reconcile, to address sin, to change problems, but also that we will do it tempered with mercy. And Lord, I pray that you will help us as we go about that in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, even at work, with our friends, that you will use that to change lives so that people see the power and the majesty of the mercy of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.